0: having a difficult time almost just finding the words to start after that, as I reflect on the things that are so easy to look past or maybe not pay attention to, and even in our faith, the way that we can walk with God and still neglect our relationship with Him. More on that to come. This morning, we are sticking in the series that we've been through, through the book of Ephesians. And I truly pray that you have fallen in love with the book of Ephesians as much as I have. I love studying all of the Bible. It's all written and it's profitable for us. And in the Old Testament, we see so many things that point towards Christ and through to God's plan and His fulfillment of that plan and all of the things that He is doing to prepare us for this moment, even such a time as this that we're in today as we study God's Word and have the opportunity to worship Him. But in the New Testament, there's something we have to admit that's just special. The glories of God have been disclosed to us through special revelation in a way that was not present before. And we can marvel at the mysteries and the the bewildering and even our understanding and and the significance that it gives us as we study the Old Testament and, and different prophecies and we understand what these things are pointing to because we have an understanding that's been disclosed to us now. But reading about the richness of God's work in the New Testament is Incredible. The book of Ephesians starts and it outlines for us this magnificent concept that God has adopted us as children, adopted us into his family. And then Paul begins to develop the idea and he gives us application that we would understand these great things. And interestingly enough, his prayer is that we would understand what there is to know which is impossible to know. I mean, it's absolutely a contradiction unless you know what he's getting at. The mysteries of God aren't something that are in reach for any person without God giving them to us. And he says, you've been adopted. God's done just this. You can understand all of the incredible truths of God. In fact, you are a part of how God is revealing this because it's through the church that God has revealed His manifold wisdom, so much so that even the angels in heaven were, were first exposed to God's great wisdom and plan for the world in the establishment of the church. But there's a problem. The worst problem with ministry is people. The biggest problem with the church is that it's filled with people. So Paul encourages his audience and us today in chapter 4 that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit. Some of you have been around a little bit longer than I have. And you're probably familiar that the only church that has never experienced any disunity, well, it doesn't exist. The truth is this unity in the Spirit is demonstrated in our obedience to Christ, but in real practical steps, all churches have some increments of division inside of them. I'm not saying that that's something we should be okay with. But the truth is, no church truly reflects this great unity because there is sin that we still rally against. We have paused. Sliding into verse 4, it almost seemed like we came to a halt before we even arrived at the base. We have been dragging through three verses that describe how this unity is maintained. This Trinitarian passage between verse 4 and verse 6 gives us a picture of God, and it's, I think, miraculous that Paul starts in the, the doctrinal, moves to the practical, and he's right back at the doctrinal again, giving us this picture of who God is in three persons. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. This Trinitarian God who is personal, and and I've admitted to you all before that I have tried to grapple with understanding what the the Trinity is and and how to make sense of it and how to avoid the heresies that fall from modalism, and and we can talk about that all, but I don't want to bore you this morning. The truth is, I turn to people that I respect and that I admire, and I try to understand how they approached it. For one, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you want to look him up, he is an admirable minister His own advice when approaching the Trinity is, do not try to understand it. Oh, it's marvelous. God is is completely beyond us. and, And there's some form of acceptance and obedience that we have to have to realize that this Trinitarian principle is so evident in the Bible, it can be, we cannot avoid it. But we just have to accept it. Something interesting that we can understand about it is Paul has juxtaposed it or put it side by side here with this picture of unity in the body to give us some form of illustration that this tri personal God who is united as one God is like that of the body. That even though we are all separate members, this unity that we are striving for comes from the one spirit that we share. This verse I want this morning, I want to get past verse six. But I want us to realize before we do that, we slow down through these three verses. Things are about to pick up, as Paul applies, why it is so important that we understand this unity. He's pointing to something even bigger. For a Christian who is trying to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to obey God, what should we be doing, the answers are buried at the end of this letter. As Paul reminds us of great intrinsic things, That the war that we are facing, the struggle that we are up against, is not a struggle of this world. He's building up to something with so much more significance that we would really understand what the church is and the way that it's to play out. But first, we have to understand this unity. And because we've um, been in for so many weeks in this passage, let's go ahead and just read from verse one all the way down to verse six and realize that this morning, we will put our attention and focus just on verse six. First, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you, Lord, as we bow, humbly asking you to provide to us the understanding that, we, that we're asking for, that we would understand this unity that you are calling us to and that we would be able to apply these truths to your lives. God, we, we, we just ask that you would not withhold yourself from us. God, as a group of people that have all had different mornings, made different breakfasts, woke up at different times, rode in different cars to be here, There are so many things in this world that could be burdening us right now. God, for a moment, I don't want to think about those things. For this time, this morning, God, I pray that you would give me great peace, that I would be able to sit with you and you alone, that my focus would only be on you, that I would understand your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We're going to move through this pretty quickly this morning. There's three kind of prepositional phrases that describe this one God and Father and if we're going to understand them this morning, I think we have to take them step by step. First, God is over all things. What the heck does that mean? You might be interested to know that the commentators pretty much skipped past the last part of this verse. Everyone that I looked at for some help pretty much skipped over this. They spent a great deal of time talking about one God and one Father and then they jump right past what it means for Him to be over all things, through all things, and in all things. But I think that's the most important part for us this morning, at least in knowing how to apply this to our lives. God is over all things. I want to give you three Ps this morning. When we think of God being over all things, that refers to God's position. It refers to His position. His position. God is above everything. He has supremacy over everything in this world. We understand this as it's revealed in Scripture that God, the one true God of the universe, is the one who stands outside of time, outside of space, because He created all matter. He's the reason time exists. He is above everything else. He is supreme in it. More specifically, though, In Ephesians, we're not talking about creation. We're not talking about all of these big cosmic ideas. We're talking about the church. We're talking about our own salvation. God is over our salvation. We spent a great time, great amount of time looking at how our salvation begins. If you wanted to jump back to Ephesians chapter one or Ephesians chapter two, you would see clearly that no person, no person here, no person in the entire world, no person in the entire unity, the unified body of Christ came to salvation because they went to God and asked for it. God started the process. Those doctrines of election are so clear in Ephesians. He called out to us. He placed the desire in us. He decided before all time that He would come to know us. He is the one who places the burden in man's heart to come to know Him. He's pursuing us. God is over all things, supreme, in position. He is the start of our own salvation. But not just that, He is over all things. He is the end of our salvation. I think a lot of people this morning, and and this isn't something new to our time or our day and age, are asking themselves, why am I here? There has to be some sort of purpose or reason that I would exist. And you come to church and you hear, well, the the simple answer is you exist so that you can come to know God, so that you can experience salvation. Well, then what? I'm saved. Now what? Why am I still here? Guys, if there's anyone with any sense of logic, if you understand that you know God and then Because you know God, you can spend eternity with Him outside of all suffering, all anguish, all of the the cataclysmic things that take place in our entire lives. I'm ready to check out and go home. Oh, there's a place of great glory. The truth is, why don't you want to be there now? Well, There's an answer for that. Because God, who is over all things, has kept us here. We have to have faith. If we have faith that this triune God is, has three persons and is still one, we certainly can have faith that there's a reason and a purpose in us being here. I can say with confidence that there is such a purpose. In fact, the Bible even tells us what this purpose is. I don't have to guess. Jump back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose and His will. For what? What's verse 6 say? To the praise of His glorious grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. Look, God, we don't even have to jump out of this book. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of His glory. The reason you exist, the reason you are called to salvation. If we want to be Westminster people, we could do this and do the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To the praise of God. The purpose of our salvation isn't just so we can be protected from the, the judgment that we deserve, but so that we can glorify God. That we can bring glory to Him. Our purpose for being here this morning is that we can worship God and bring glory to Him. God is over all things, meaning Referring to His position. He is supreme in all things. What are we supposed to do with this? Run to Him. Because of God's position, we should run to Him. In our despair and in our suffering, in our anguish, in our, our, even our doubts and the thoughts that run through our minds as we see things that are taking place in the world, we, instead of trying to figure it out, we run to the God because I exist because he created me. I exist so that I can glorify him. If you want the fulfillment of purpose in life, run to him. Because of his position, we run to him. God is through all things, meaning that not only is he supreme, but now this refers to his power. So I'll give you three Ps. First one, his position. Second one, his power. Because if you're human like I am, I suspect that there are some aliens here this morning, but... If you're human like I am, I am sure that you have experienced doubt. I'm sure things have happened in your life that have caused you to go, is this really what God wants to happen? I mean, if we look at the philosophies of this world, I mean, man has come up or constructed this idea, this picture of the universe that that there's this good force and this evil force and that they're working at the same time and sometimes one gets the upper hand and some doesn't. You guys, that's nonsense if I'm looking at the world from the perspective of the Bible and I understand that this tells me that there is one God who stands outside of time. He created all things and He holds all things together. He is through all things. There is nothing that can happen that He is not allowed to happen. There is no doubt that can enter your mind that He is not allowed to be there. There is no insecurity that you can suffer that God has not allowed you to grapple with. There's no circumstance that can come your way that God has not allowed to happen. And we could be immature about understanding God's sovereignty in all things, but um, we could sit back and, and we could say, what kind of a God is this that I'm supposed to glorify that He would let these kinds of things happen in the world? Unless we have a little bit of faith. Enough faith to understand that this triune God is one. Enough faith to understand that this God created us with a purpose and He's left us here for a purpose. Enough faith to know without a shadow of a doubt that all things work to the praise of His own glory. That He is working in us that we would be able to praise His goodness. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I said because of his position, we should run to God. Because of his power, we should rely on God. Again, not trying to get so far out of the context of this passage that we can just do whatever we want with this text. Paul is writing specifically about the church. Paul is writing specifically about the believer. He says, of all. Make sure we understand this. When he says, of all, he's not saying that God is Father to the heathen. He is Father to His creation and those whom He has adopted. The special relationship we have with a God who is in a position of power, a God who is sovereign in all things, the special relationship that we have with Him to call Him Father is specifically referring to that relationship that we get to enjoy. That we can run to Him and that we can rely upon Him. The church has... We don't spend enough time talking about the mission of the church. We talk about Missions Day. Hey, our churches have Missions Month. Check us out. What is the mission? Go into all the world and make disciples. I actually think it's twofold because Jesus also told us what the greatest commandment was, that we would love one another. So when we look at the mission of our church, it has to be kind of twofold. It's not just about running out into the world, but it's also about bringing God's people together to give them a place of rest, to give them a place of edification and nurturing and a place to grow, a place to be held accountable to one another, that they can be spurred on to understanding this greatness of God. That's why we have our mission statement. Point people to God, pull people to one another, prepare people for mission. Who do we rely on to fulfill this mission that comes from God? We set up programs. Oh, and I've got to brag about what's coming up in our church. I am so excited about this Easter outreach. We're going to have an Easter egg hunt. We're going to feed the community. We're going to find out what needs the people in our community have so that we can meet them, so that we can actually minister to them, so that instead of being a church that only looks on what's happening on the outside, we realize that we're actually in an entire zip code, in an entire state, an entire country, an entire world, and that our Great Commission isn't just here, but it is out there. I'm stoked about this. What do we rely on to accomplish this mission? Personally, I rely on, on Holly Husband's ingenuity and organizational talents. Amen. Some of you rely on a man that he would be able to stand at a podium, that he could study God's Word, and that he might do some sort of uh, spiritual digestion for you that you can be fed spiritually. I mean, that's my calling, right? I'm a shepherd. I'm supposed to feed the flock. I love feeding my children. You know what I really love about feeding my children? When I don't have to cut up their food into safe, choke-proof sizes. I love feeding my children when they grow up enough to pick up a piece of meat, put it in their mouth, chew on it by themselves, digest it by themselves, enjoy it by themselves. I look forward to the day that Michelle and I can sit down to dinner and enjoy a meal again. The church is no different. Who do we rely on to accomplish our mission? There is only one in all of creation who is capable to work through all things, who is sovereign in all things, who will accomplish all things, and that is the God who created everyone who is seated here this morning. Oh, I say that, and it's easy to move past. I think I've lost some of you. I need you to realize this. When we rely on God, that means that we aren't focused on our own creativity. In our own marriages, we aren't focused on our own um, being romantic or our own uh, intellect to win an argument. We rely on God. I mean, after all, our mission is that we would be able to make disciples. To be, make disciples, we have to start. They have to be saved. I'm not going to save anyone. I need God to do the saving. But we prepare for these great events like this Easter outreach or like this October outreach we had a few months ago to serve the community. How much time do we spend relying on God as those things come their way, our way? How much time have you spent this week praying that God would be in the work of our community softening hearts? I mean, I don't know about you, but this business that's taken place in Ukraine, it's softened a lot of hearts. Did you know you can look up Google Trends? You can see what people are Google searching. You know, over the past week, there's been a significant, and it doesn't mean big, it just means notable, uptick in the number of people that are Google searching church. I think it's time that as a church, we have an outreach that meets the needs of our community. An outreach like this Easter outreach has the potential to do. If it's going to be successful, we cannot rely on Holly's ingenuity, organizational talents. We cannot rely on the willingness of our church members to serve. We have to rely on God. You want a church that's unified. You want a church that reflects what Paul's asking us to be, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, walking eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But we sit here and we say, there's not a church that looks like that. People are divisive. The only thing we can do is rely on God to change people because that's what He promises to do. You want to have an attitude of forgiveness and understand what it means to forgive another person, we have to rely on God to give us the ability to forgive because He's already forgiven us. So God's in great position over all things. The start of our salvation, the cause of our salvation, the end of our salvation. God is in great power. He is through all things, sovereign in all things. So we run to Him and we rely upon Him. There is but one God. This is the oldest commandment, perhaps the most important commandment that we have. In fact, I mentioned Jesus' great commandment that He gives the disciples. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There is one God. We live in a world that would argue otherwise. We live in a society that is um, progressively adopting the idea that there are many paths to knowing God or at least knowing the spiritual force and maybe a personal God isn't even the way to think about Him. And there's all of these corrupting ideas. And if you wanted, if you wanted to waste your time and your life pursuing all of these different things, I can tell you what you would find. And I don't know this from personal experience. Some of it I do know from personal experience. But I also have the testimony of friends who have come to know God from different ways of understanding the spiritual, who affirm this for me. When you have been made aware that there is a divine force in all of creation... And it's pretty easy to be made, to make, for that to be made known to us. You wake up and you see that we've been created. Obviously, there's a creator. And you start to pursue knowing, running to Him, relying upon Him. All world religions will leave you unsettled and unsatisfied. In fact, um, if we understand the group of people that Paul's writing to in Ephesians, it was in Ephesus. If you want to read more about the uh, story, go to Acts chapter 17. But when Paul first came to Ephesus and the, he was edifying the saints and the people were becoming to know, coming to know God, there was actually a riot that broke out in Ephesus. As the church in Ephesus was starting to take shape, the community rioted. I mean, these people, they weren't a-spiritual. They they, they they, had great spirituality. In fact, there were two major temples inside of Ephesus. There was a temple of Artemis and then Diana, and then the people were worshiping. And their riot wasn't about more spirituality coming in. It wasn't about this Christian church that was beginning to take shape. It was actually the, the silversmiths that started the riot because... Well, it was a great form of commerce that they could sit outside of the Temple of Artemis and they could make these artifacts that people would worship. And well, because people were unsatisfied every time that they would worship false gods and fake things, they would always be coming back for this form of uh, uh, satisfaction that they were never going to get. And the silversmiths who were making money off of people's own suffering, well, they started a riot. Get these Christians out of town. This Paul guy's brought in this good news of this guy Jesus, and people aren't coming back to me anymore. That's the same thing that, that, that every world religion is going to leave you to, and it's going to be easy to manipulate because you'll always be unsatisfied and you'll always be unsettled. Fake things don't satisfy you. And just if anyone's ever done a diet, They have this stuff, it's fake meat. It does not satisfy you. It may fill your stomach, but it does not satisfy you. There is one God. One God that we can run to. One God that we can rely upon. We've moved pretty quickly. I'm on my last point. Check this out. He's over all, through all, in all. What could in all mean? The last P describes His presence. We've talked about God's position over all things, His superiority. We've talked about God's power, His supremacy, His sovereignty. What does it mean that He's in all? It means that He is present. The most remarkable thing about the God revealed to us in the Bible is that He is personal. We have this idea of the the world that something, you know, something caused all of this to spin out like maybe we imagine like somebody playing a game of pool somebody at one end was holding the stick hit the ball and then everything went out and was just falling into chaos well we understand that that god hasn't just left us in chaos this whole time this whole call to salvation our entire christian experience has been god calling out to us pulling us out of the darkness of sin, the blindness and the bondage of sin, that we would come to know Him. That we could call Him Father. I don't know about you, but if you've been a Christian very long, it's easy to forget what it was like in those first moments when we were called to salvation those first couple of minutes when we realized that we were safe and secure for the rest of all time because God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die on a cross, that if we would identify with Him, that we would be one with Him. And being in Him, we would be present with Him for all time. we would be present with Him. Psalm 139 gives us this beautiful picture that God is with us when we lie down. He's with us when we rise up. He's not leaving us. You hem me in, before me, and you lay your hand upon me. You are behind me, surrounding us. God is present with us. And somebody says, Preacher, I know you say that. I know it's what the Bible says, but why don't I feel like it? I have to confess to my church this morning. My pastoral incompetence. In my spiritual walk, I have always maintained my walk with God through discipline, through grit, through volition, through my willpower. I wake up in the morning when the alarm clock goes off, not because I want to, but because I'm going to. There's great determination in it. I study God's word sometimes, not because I want to, but because I know I need to. My advice, then, for people who say, I don't feel this presence of God, has always been maybe you should pull your pants up and do the work. Maybe you should grow up a little bit and quit being a child of the faith and you should read your Bible by yourself. That's good advice but I don't think it answers the problem. The truth is, the church has done a terrible job of acknowledging that it's possible for us to be discouraged in our faith because I don't don't think we want to talk about this great disappointment. Just like we jump beyond the the passage of... uh, the the passage with Nebuchadnezzar asking the the children of God to worship Him, we, we jump past the part where they say, and if God decides not to deliver me, that's okay too. I think we've done a poor job of acknowledging that we can be disappointed in the way that God is working. And I want you to hear what I mean by that. God is not asking us to just turn our frown upside down when we meet discouragement. To run to Him and to rely on Him means that we take all of these doubts with us. To be present with God means... I mean, look, guys, you can't deceive God who knows all things. He knows your thoughts. He counted the hairs on your head. There's no deceiving Him. He already knows your circumstances. He just wants you to bring them to Him. After all, your salvation is for His glory. To really be with God? To be present with God? It isn't just about discipline. It's about comfort. To sit in His presence. To make yourself aware of how He is in all things. To be with Him. I've mentioned a couple times now that it's so just mind-blowing that as Christians that we would say, One God and Father. Actually, J.I. Packer makes the note that to call God Father is so uniquely Christian, it's actually what distinguishes Jews from Christians. To call God Father and to realize that this manifold wisdom of God revealed in the church, this great adoption that we have to Him, He cares for us as Father. What a magnificent, magnificent viewpoint to take. This great doctrine of adoption made known in the way that we regard a present God. Because God is in a position of being supreme, we run to Him because He is sovereign through all things. We Rest, I mean, rely upon Him because He is present. We rest in Him. We rest in Him. Run to Him, rely on Him, rest in Him. Recently, we've talked about the great need revival, not just in our country or in the world, but in the churches. We said that revival doesn't come about because people decide it's going to come about. It comes about because God works. And the way that God works is with each individual asking God by spending time with Him in His presence and asking Him to create revival in their own lives. We have the potential to reach our community in a way, in a tremendous way. Things are starting to take shape. They're being organized the way that they need to. People's hearts are being softened the way that only God can do. It will all be ineffective if we're not obedient to Him. Before I conclude this morning, I'm sure somebody says, my goodness, we've totally stepped away from this grueling lecture that we've been receiving about church unity. How is it possible? How does does this relate that we can run to God, rely on God, and rest in God? How does this relate to unity in the church? It's very simple. Unity in the church can never be manufactured through man's volition or will. It is only evident when we are united together in the one Spirit inside of us, the one Lord who leads us, the one God who cares and nurtures us. And what better way to be united than in prayer? And I'm not jumping out of context, by the way. Look at where Ephesians is heading. If you wanted to look at the end in Ephesians chapter 6, you would see that it would be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. The great call, the great conclusion of this letter points to our need of prayer. You want to be united in the body, be united in prayer in the presence of God. I pray that our Easter event, that we would feed the hungry, that we would have a great presentation of the gospel, that people would understand it, that they would come to know the God that we know. I pray that we would be able to serve each other. This week, I ask that you would pray. Pray through our mission statement. As we take this month to focus on missions all over the world and the people who are serving in different places, I pray that you would spend time being united in the mission of our church. That you would pray that we would point people to God. That you would pray that we would pull people to one another, that there would be unity among us, that not only would individually we be spending time in the presence of God, but that we would be made so pure, so holy, that when we come together, it is tangible that we would feel the presence of God, that there would be no sin that separates us from that great love, that as a church... We would be prepared for mission. Run to God because of His position over all things. Rely on God because of His power through all things. And rest in God because of His presence in all things. And all of God's people said, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the time that we have this morning to come together and to worship you, to know you. God, I pray that we would not take that sacrifice on the cross and neglect it. God, I pray that we would have the courage to be honest with ourselves, that we could come to You and finally be honest with You. There's nothing that we can hide from You, God, so I pray that You would give me the courage to be honest with You in all things. God, I pray that You would help me to create time in my life to just spend time with You. God, I pray that I would Know again those first few moments when I was saved. That there would be great revival in our community and that we would know what it is to know you. In Jesus' name we pray.